Hello and welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. My name is Nicholas Schaefer and we are in season six, which is called How I Try to Figure Things Out. This is episode seven, Machine Learning. What is machine learning? Let's start by comparing machine learning with traditional computer programming. A basic element of computer programming, and also mathematics, is a function. A function maps inputs to outputs using some set of operations. Mathematical functions have some other technical requirements, but they won't be relevant for us here. An example of a function is the square, which maps numbers to the number multiplied by itself. 5 squared is 25. This particular input is 5. The contents of the function are the input times the input. The output in this particular case is 25. You could put any number in and apply the same operation and get an output out. So again, the basic elements of a function are the inputs, the operations, which are sometimes called the algorithm, and the outputs. In traditional programming, most of the work goes into writing down the algorithm that does the transformations that you want. Once you've written the algorithm, you can put in any input you want and get the output that you want. A complete program may contain many such functions and compose them in different ways to accomplish tasks. The majority of the software that runs on your phone and computer uses this kind of approach. Namely, humans work on writing down the algorithms that ultimately make the software run and do useful things. One way to think about machine learning is that the focus shifts from writing down the algorithm explicitly to teaching the machine what the algorithm should look like from pairs of example inputs and outputs. In this case, the work of the human is not mostly in writing down the code inside of the function but instead in collecting lots of examples of inputs and outputs, and then writing down the code that will allow the machine to learn the algorithm from these examples. Hence the name, machine learning. Just now I said that the work is not mostly in writing down the algorithm, but in practice, there is still quite a bit of work to do there in the case of machine learning. One of the reasons why we still have to do some work here is that the space of all possible algorithms is unimaginably large. So writing down a partial specification of the function is required in order to limit the set of all completely specified functions the machine has to search through and evaluate when doing the learning. Let's return to our example of the square function. Let's say that we don't know what the algorithm is, but we do have some examples of inputs and outputs that we have managed to collect. Namely, 1 maps to 1, 2 maps to 4, 4 maps to 16, and 5 maps to 25. So we provide the machine with these examples and ask it to learn the corresponding algorithm. 
This might seem like a simple problem, but the apparent simplicity is partially an illusion that comes from you, most likely unconsciously, leveraging a lot of intuitions that you have about what reasonable mathematical functions look like. There are actually an infinite number of functions that could perfectly map these set of inputs to these outputs, and only one of them is the one that we're looking for. Many of the solutions, if you plotted them, would have wild up and down oscillations between the integer values, and others would look completely flat between the integer values. These would all fit the data perfectly, but are not likely to be what we're looking for. The machine doesn't share your intuitions. So if we didn't give it more guidance, then it would almost certainly find one of the solutions that we don't want. The solution to this problem is what I referred to as writing down a partial specification of the algorithm. You write down the class of solution that you're looking for, or that you think is reasonable, and leave some wiggle room that the machine will use during the learning process to find the best specific solution from that class of solutions. In this case, a reasonable partial specification would be as follows. Let's call the input to the function n, the partial specification of the algorithm, and the output, which are the same in this simple case will then be n to the power x, where n, again, is the input, and x is a free parameter. This class of solutions includes the identity line, which maps the inputs to themselves, when x equals 1, and includes a set of curves that increase in curvature for x greater than 1. During the learning process, the machine will try out different values of x and see what value of x gives the best mapping between the inputs and the outputs. Once the best value of x is found, we will have a complete specification of the algorithm, namely n times n, or n squared, where x equals 2. Once we have our complete algorithm specification, now we can treat the function like we would any other function, whether it was written by a human or obtained by machine learning. Again, using the above example, if we wanted to know the output corresponding to the input of n equals 3, we would just run it through our function and find that the output is n squared equals 9. In the context of machine learning, this might be referred to as a prediction, because the input was not contained in the dataset that was used to train the model, where the inputs were 1, 2, 4, and 5. Of course, this example is very simple and is used only for illustrative purposes. In reality, we would likely never go to the trouble of doing machine learning when the inputs and outputs were as simple as this, but let's stay with this simplified world for a little longer to see what might go wrong. We saw from the previous example that we gained a lot from writing down a partial specification of the algorithm. Namely, we got to one specific solution out of an infinite set of possible solutions that the machine would otherwise have to be able to distinguish from each other. So what's the catch? What happens if we make a mistake in the partial specification? Let's look in an example. Let's say that instead of the partial algorithm n to the x, we chose x times n. The class of solutions x times n are all straight lines, but with different slopes. If you gave the machine the above input and output data pairs and this new partial specification, it would find the best solution no problem. The resulting fit to the data, however, would not be as good as the perfect fit that was obtained with the previous partial specification. 
the predictions made by this function would also not be as good. For example, now for an input of 3, instead of getting 9, which we expect, we would get 11.5. And the errors will get even worse as we get farther away from the training data. Instead of 10 squared equals 100, we will now get 10 squared equals 53.5. So we see that setting up the right partial function specification or functional form is very important. These partial algorithm or function specifications sometimes go by the name of inductive biases. Inductive learning refers to learning by example, which is what the machine is doing. You are providing the examples. It's learning an algorithm, a function, a mapping, whatever you want to call it from those examples. Some biases are required because otherwise the space of possible functions is too large and hard to search, and moreover contains many functions that fit the data perfectly that we almost certainly don't want. A lot of work in machine learning goes into finding good inductive biases for particular classes of problems. I'll just mention quickly a few other areas of work within machine learning. I mentioned above that the machine is searching through possible values of x, looking for the best one. But how does it know what's best? By itself, it doesn't. You have to tell it. To do this, you have to write down a loss function. And yes, in this case, you really do have to write it down. The loss function takes the training outputs and the algorithm outputs as inputs. And the output of the loss function is a number that represents how well the algorithm's outputs match the training outputs. Typically, a loss of zero would indicate a perfect match, and higher positive values indicate that there's some discrepancy between the outputs from the algorithm and the outputs from the training examples. In the case of our previous example, a value of x equals 2 would give a loss of zero in the first case where our inductive bias was that the function should be of the form n to the power x, whereas a value of x equals 6 would give a positive loss when our inductive bias was that the function should be a straight line or of the form x times n. There are different ways to define the loss in general, and how you define the loss can have important consequences because the training data together with the loss determine what the optimal solution is. Different functions can be imperfect in different ways, and the definition of the loss chooses your preferred way of being imperfect. Once the inductive bias and loss are defined, there's still the entire matter of obtaining the optimal parameters. When the problems become much more complex than the simple example we've discussed here, it's important that the search through the parameter space be efficient. So there's a lot of work that goes into producing efficient algorithms for searching through parameter space. The most popular kinds of algorithms currently in use leverage calculus heavily. So another important consideration when defining a loss function is that it should be differentiable with respect to your free parameters, which is to say that it can tell you not only how well the algorithm's outputs match the training example currently, but also what a change in the fit would be if you change particular parameters. To appreciate the advantage this provides, imagine playing a game where you're supposed to put a blindfold on and then walk to a red dot that's painted on the ground somewhere in a parking lot. Without sight to guide you, this would be very difficult. If instead, you are put in a bowl in a skate park and told to stand on a red dot that it was at the lowest part of the bowl. Even with the blindfold on, you could feel the right direction to move with your feet and make the task infinitely more feasible. So it is with being able to compute the slope of the loss function.
Finally, once a set of parameters is obtained, it's important to evaluate the performance of the algorithm. In general, we don't expect to obtain a perfect fit to the data, and we want to measure the performance on the training data and on data that's not in the training set. Oftentimes, this means computing the loss, but also other measures of performance. So, it seems like we've just replaced one difficult problem, which is writing down the algorithm by hand, with another set of difficult problems, namely defining the right inductive bias, optimizing the parameters, evaluating the performance. So where do machine learning techniques really shine? One class of problems is high-dimensional problems, and a classic example is that of image recognition. In image recognition, the input is an image, which inside the computer is represented as a matrix of pixel values, perhaps with several different color channels. The output could be, yes, this is a cat, or no, this is not a cat. And you can try to write down manually the function that maps a picture to whether or not it contains a cat, and I'll just wait here. How do we solve this problem? Enter neural networks. Neural networks are universal approximators. So what does this mean? Neural networks are highly composed but very simple mathematical functions. They can take very high dimensional input, like the image that we mentioned previously, and they contain not one, but many adjustable parameters. There's a mathematical proof that says that if there exists such a function, like a mapping from an image to a cat-no-cat -cat label, which we know exists because humans can do this mapping, then there exists a neural network that can approximate this function. This means that now we are in possession of a class of functions that are, in some sense, guaranteed to be able to learn a function if we can provide the machine with enough examples, which goes a long way to solving one of the difficult problems that we created for ourselves, namely defining appropriate inductive biases. In practice, there's still a lot of work that goes into further specifying the inductive biases of neural networks, which sometimes goes by the name of defining the architecture. Some progress has come from using intuitions to guess relevant inductive biases within the class of neural networks. In the case of image recognition, one intuition is that comprehension of an image is built up by first examining local patches of an image and then larger patches of the small patches, etc., until the whole image is understood by looking at the entire thing. Applying this intuition to specifying an architecture for a neural network led to convolutional neural networks, which have effectively solved the image recognition problem in simple cases and in the presence of sufficient training data. Let's take a look back at what we discussed this episode. We compared machine learning to traditional computer programming, and we thought about three parts of a function, the inputs, the algorithm, and the outputs. In traditional programming, we write down the algorithm ourselves. In machine learning, we give the machine examples of inputs and outputs, as well as a partial specification of the algorithm, and then let it learn the best completely specified algorithm from the class of algorithms that we let it choose from. We learned that neural networks are an extremely general class of solutions, and that much of the remaining work in machine learning goes into further specifying appropriate inductive biases 
defining the loss function, and efficiently obtaining optimal solutions for the free parameters. How does this fit into our topics for the rest of the season? I hope that as I was discussing what a function is, it reminded you of our previous discussions of quantitative models or data generating processes. Further discussion of how these topics fit in to the rest of the season will have to be left for another episode. Looking ahead, future topics include causal models, information theory, and different types of uncertainty. Thanks as always for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.